0: You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. So last week, Jono spoke to you about uh, the main symbol that we have and the door and the name of the church. Um, well, today I'm talking about the second symbol, and if you look in the, the little booklets that we handed out last week, and you can grab them in the foyer uh, as, you, as you come in or go out today, uh, we've got these explanations here, and I'm going to go into more detail about this first one, which is the circle. And so what the circle is about, uh, as, as this little banner indicates, and you'll be able to go back to these banners every week when you want to find out if you forget what the symbols are about, it, it's about community. And so we're going to talk about community today, but we want to make it easy for you to remember what we're talking about. So what we've decided to do is to to represent it by a circle. So you think Knights of the Round Table, okay? And they sat and they did their, their thinking and their deciding around food. Food is really, really important. We want you to think about this concept of having food with people, inviting people into your home and so the circle represents a table and food is very important in all the theology of the early church and even before that uh, if you go to one particular bible college in melbourne there's actually a subject in their course called the theology of the table because the theology the way the church developed and the way that that people have interacted as christians for a The very early days centers around the table and around food because life connections get deeper once you get food involved. And so we want you to think about how can we have food together, not because we want to eat, but because we know that that's how we connect with each other. And this goes way back to the beginning of the early church. It's also through the whole temple sacrificial system. If you look in the Old Testament there, and all the way back to the Passover that John O was talking about last week. And so the table is about community, and community is what we're talking about today. So there's a beautiful little book. Uh, it's called the All Better Book, and it's about how to solve uh, the world's big problems. And it's written by primary school children. And so these little children, they're all grappling with the idea of how do we fix the big issues in life, like uh, global climate changes, and and how do we help people with their addictions. And somebody's taken all their responses and all their ideas and their suggestions and they've put them into this little book of children's wisdom. And here's the toughest question in the book. With billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. What do you suggest? And here are some of their answers. Kalani's aged eight and she said, people should find lonely people and ask their name and address. Then ask people who aren't lonely their name and address. And when you have an even amount of each, assign lonely and not lonely people together in the newspaper. That was her suggestion. Max says, we could make food that talks to you when you eat it. (laughs) That's a pretty good one. I like Matt's suggestion. He says we could get people a pet or a husband and <laughs> and take them places makes me feel good about myself with billions of people in the world somebody should figure out a system where no one is lonely It seems like such a simple, basic, easy thing to do. But for centuries, the smartest people in the world have tried to figure out an answer to this and they've written tomes about it. Plato wrote The Republic and it's basically about trying to solve this problem. One of the greatest pastors and theologians of all time is a guy named Augustine and his life's work is really about this topic. It's called The City of God. You've got the story of the Odyssey by Homer, all the way through to King Arthur and Camelot, the basic themes behind most of these great works are this idea of how do we make community work? And we're all searching for the answer to that and one of the most remembered speeches in the history of the world today is about how one day all human beings should be able to eat together. They should be able to hold hands and sing a common song. And that speech by Martin Luther King was so captivating because he wasn't talking about his dream and he wasn't talking about our dream, he was talking about God's dream. With billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. Now this is happening in our world all around us right now. Uh, There's an industry, and I don't know if you know about this industry, but it's an industry called the friend industry. And you can look it up on the website. It's an industry where people have the job of being your friend. You get paid to hang out. You get paid to play PlayStation. You get paid to go to parties with people or go to a movie with someone because people are lonely when they go to the movies and they don't want to go by themselves. So you can rent a friend to go to the movies with you. You can go in Melbourne today, and rent a friend for this afternoon if you want to. This is how bad the problem is, and it's not just for young people. Uh, it's a lot of older people who are lonely too. And some of you are thinking that this is just really weird, but it's actually a great idea. This guy, is, you, you talk about, there are people who want to go and play golf. I don't want to go play golf by myself because I used to have a friend that used to go with me and maybe they died and now I'm lonely and I don't want to go golfing together by myself anymore. Now, this all started in Asia, in some of the most densely populated areas of the world. you in Asia, in the big cities, surrounded by millions of people, but you're intensely, intensely lonely. And we find this in churches. The bigger the church gets, the more lonely it feels. So now, while we've got our two services happening and you've got a kind of smaller church happening now, it's a good time to make some connections because we expect the church to grow and then you might find it's harder to make some connections. So work on those now. But there is no pain like the pain of loneliness. Now, there's a person who wrote in the Chicago Tribune and her name's name's Marla Paul and she confessed in an article one day, she had one of these opinion pieces and she said, I'm so lonely how did it happen that I could be 42 years old and not have enough friends? And she said, I asked my husband if something was wrong with me. Uh, She wondered if people were too busy for friends anymore and she said this. She said, it seems as though every woman's friendship quota is full and she's no longer accepting new applicants. Don't put your hand up, but do do you ever feel that? I think we all feel that. And she concluded her column this way. She said, I recently read my daughter, Hans Christian Andersen's The Ugly Duckling, and I felt an immediate kinship with this bird who flies from place to place looking for creatures with whom he belongs. He eventually finds them. I hope I do too. She was flooded with responses to her column. Really, you two? I thought I was the only one. Why is it so hard to make friends? There is no pain like the pain of loneliness. And if loneliness is common for women, it's kind of a hidden plague among men. Uh, There was a survey in which it was discovered that 90% of men said, I don't have a true friend. Loneliness is so painful that people will admit to being lonely in anonymous polls, but if they have to put their name on the piece of paper, they'll say that they're independent or self-sufficient. I'll pick those boxes instead. Mother Teresa said this. She said, loneliness is the leprosy of modern society and nobody wants anybody to know that they're a leper. And some of you feel like that. Some of you feel like you are the leper and you feel like nobody wants you around. And you're afraid to admit that you're lonely. And every week you dread the emptiness of the weekend. And in the office on Friday, you desperately hope that someone invites you to a party but it hardly ever happens. And it might be that every Sunday you come to church and you're desperately hoping that someone invites you home to have lunch with them after church. But that never happens either. And so that's why we've coded this into what we're about because we want the people in our church inviting people over to lunch after church on a Sunday, as well as a whole bunch of other ways of doing that. Now, on the other hand, some of you used to be lepers, you used to be lonely but you're not anymore and you have found the cure and it's a pretty effective cure. You have just immersed yourself in work, you have immersed yourself in busyness or the social scene, going to parties and on the weekend what happens is you are just exhausted from a week of hyperactivity. And after church today, you're thinking, I couldn't possibly handle having anybody over to my house because I'm just too tired and I need to clean the house and I need to catch up on everything that I didn't do during the week and my house is a bombshell and I've got to fix that up because next week I've got another week of hyperactivity with more parties and more work and I've got to get ready for that. So I couldn't have anybody over to my house. And I just want to crash on the couch this afternoon. That's how some of you have dealt with this problem of loneliness. But tonight, like you do every Sunday night, you'll probably lay awake in bed and think, what did I do with my weekend? And what what does my life mean? And in the quiet moments, you are lonely too. And you don't like those quiet, lonely moments. So tomorrow, you'll bury those feelings with another week of hyperactivity. And here's the problem with all of this. This is one of the big problems. And you may have experienced this. If you invite a lonely person to lunch today, they will be so shocked and they will enjoy it so much that they will stay at your house all day and you will never want to invite anybody over to your house again. All right, we we know that's true, don't we? But with billions of people in the world, somebody should be able to figure out a system that works where no one is lonely. I get lonely. When I lived in Adelaide uh, and I went to university, I I was one of these people that didn't have too many friends. Um, And it wasn't because I was distant from God, right? We're not saying because you're lonely, uh, you must be distant from God. I, I completely dispute that. In fact, the lonelier I was, the closer I felt to God because I had to depend on Him more and these were really important times for me to form my spirituality and during these times, that's when God became my closest friend and we had wonderful times together but I still felt lonely. And I remember one time I was at Bible college and I'd finished my exams and all of our class got together for lunch like we did at the last last exam every year. We all got together for lunch at someone's house, which was great. And after lunch... I was saying, hey, what do we do now? Let's do something. Everybody else had something to do. They had assignments to finish because they weren't organized and I was a geek and I was organized, so I was all done. Or they had people to see or they had people at their church that they were caring for and I'd done everything. Um, And maybe that's why I had no friends because I was that bit of a nerd um, and I spent all my time working and all of that but I came to this moment and I wanted something to do and the term was over, there was no work left for me to to do so there was nothing to distract me from the fact that I had spare time so I did what I always did when I was lonely and I ran. But I hadn't been for a run for a while, I'd been busy and I didn't have the right clothes with me, uh, just the shorts that I was wearing for the exam at the time. So I took my shirt off, I took my shoes off and I went down to the beach and I ran on the sand and I thought I'll just go to that little ridge just to give me, and I went to that ridge and I felt pretty good. So I thought I'll, I'll go a bit further and I went a bit further and, and the next, next thing I knew I was actually in the next suburb in Brighton, I'd run from one jetty to another And I got there and I stopped and realized I've got really sore feet now because I have no shoes. And so I started to run in the water on the way back and um, then my shorts got wet which just started to chafe everywhere. And it was really nasty and I could hardly walk for a week because I hadn't run all year and now my calves the next day were killing me. I could hardly walk, I had chafing everywhere. Uh, there was another time when I was really lonely o- on a Saturday afternoon and again, this is what I used to do when I was lonely, I'd go for a run. So I was actually pretty fit because I was pretty lonely and, and I, took, I, took, <laughs> I took my two dogs with me. We had two farm dogs, they were Kelpies and they loved to run and run and run and I thought I wonder if I can get to the beach from my house. And, and from my house to the beach was all these rolling hills and, and I started to run and I, I wasn't very well prepared as, you know, when you're 20, you can, you're invincible, you can... So I just ran or I didn't take any water or anything. I just had a bum bag for my phone and uh, it was the middle of summer, it was at least 30 degrees but I started running. And after about two hours in this 30 degree heat, over these hills, through the thistles and the fences and the snakes as it turned out, about two hours later, I got to the beach and I thought, this is going to be great, can't wait to jump in the water. But there was a cliff and I'm thinking, how do I get, it was like a, it was a a solid cliff like the height of this roof. I'm like, how do I get down? Well, the dogs had already gone down. (laughs) All right, because they were ahead If they'd smelled the water and they were like, Yeah, and so I had to go down after them. And, and so I climbed, tried to climb down, really, I slid down more than climbed down. I jumped in the water and it was amazing, it was one of the best swims I've ever had in my life. The water was clear, it was one of those pebble beaches. Um, eventually, I got out of the water, it was getting late, I decided I needed to head home, and then I realized well, I got to get back up that cliff because I really didn't know where I was. Um, the dogs couldn't get back up the cliff. So I had to carry them up the cliff. Um, so I kind of managed to push. Have you ever pushed like a dog up a hill? Right? That's what was going on. Uh, and then I looked back towards home and I realised, which I should have done, that the whole way here I was running downhill because right? it's the beach. <laughs> and so back home was uphill. Um, but... I, I didn't have a car, I had no phone service. Like, so about three-quarters of the way back home, my Kelpie disappeared. And I called and I called, nothing. So I, I called my other dog, got him to come to me. We went back to try and find my Kelpie. Found the Kelpie lying on the ground, <laughs> exhausted. I had outrun my sheepdog, um, which I didn't realise was possible. I checked my phone, no coverage. So I picked up the dog And kept running home. Eventually we made it home. As soon as we're close enough, the dog goes, yay, thanks for that, and jumped out of my arms and took off and went home. Um, But I I tried home after several hours of running and I was sore and I was tired. But I had that kind of runner's high that you get. And I felt great until I unlocked my door. And it was the door of a dark, empty house. And so I made myself a, another meal of baked beans and eggs on, and mushrooms on toast, which is what I used to do. And I went down into my room and I put on my Mariah Carey CD, all right, <laughs> and uh, I listened to her singing that hero song, you know, one day a hero will come, you know, that song over and over again, all right. That, that was my life. But it all worked out. Here's the good news. I'll show you some pictures. I met Beck, she kind of solved my loneliness issues, and, and this this is where it all happened. This place became a very special place for us. Um, we got engaged on that Pebble Beach. Um, that's the lighthouse kind of where I ran past. And so, you know, that, that all worked out. But I remember other times, like um one our church ran a youth drop-in center for the holidays. And I volunteered to be the security guy so I would stay overnight guarding all the machines that we had for all the games um, with a couple of other also lonely guys because I didn't want to go back to my house. So I stayed sleeping on the floor of the church because I didn't want to go there. I remember one night sleeping overnight on the floor of the church staff room because I had assignments to do and I couldn't face going home to do the assignments alone. So I know what loneliness feels like. And as I look at you guys here today, I know that every single one of you is saying, yeah, I know what loneliness feels like too. Because you do. With billions of people in the world, somebody should be able to think of a system where no one is lonely. So, have you ever wondered why God created the world? Why did God create people? What's the point of it all? Have you ever wondered if the reason why God created us is because he was lonely too? You ever thought about that? As we read through the creation story in the Bible... Uh, We see God making light. He makes light, what does he say? That's good. We see God making the plants and he says, that's good. We see God making the, the seasons and the years and the patterns of the solar system and he makes the plants and he makes the animals. And he says, look at how all those things are spinning through the universe without crashing into each other and then when they do crash, it just looks spectacular. That's good. And the fish, yeah, that's nice, he says. And the flowers, he says, wow, they're beautiful. And the animals, they're good. But when it comes to people in the next chapter, it all comes to a screeching halt. You know why? Because he creates man and what does he say? Not good everything's been good up to this point and he creates a man and he says, not good. Why? What was wrong with the man? Well, God notices that Adam is alone. He was lonely and God says, not good. And we think, hang on, that can't be right. That, no, that theologically, that, that doesn't make sense because we've all heard sermons where... The pastor said, you have a God-shaped hole in your heart and only God can fill it and that's why you're lonely, right? You've heard that sermon, haven't you? Well, in Eden, Adam had God, didn't he? He had a perfect relationship with God. Every word that they spoke to each other was wonderful and encouraging and fulfilling and, and great, and, and they spoke every day, and God was actually there, and, and God would visit in the cool of the day. How could Adam possibly be lonely? But he was. He was alone. And God said, "Not good." And it is true that we do have a God-shaped hole in our soul that no human can fill. That is true. But the Bible also tells us that we have a human-shaped hole in our hearts that God himself has decided not to fill. He could fill it if he wanted to, but he said, no, I want another system. With billions of people in the world, Somebody should figure out a system where no one's lonely and someone did and that person was God and the system is called community, relationship. You might call it family. And to understand the system and to understand how God came up with the system, we have to go way back even before the story of creation. We have to go before the world was created and understand something about God himself and we have to understand what God is like. We have to understand what life was like for God before humans existed. Before there was anything that we know, there was God. Which begs that question that we asked before, was God lonely? And the answer is no, God wasn't lonely. Let me explain. When the early church fathers decided to try to explain God, they they had a lot of trouble because God's not like anything that we know, right? He's outside of time, doesn't have a physical body, all kinds of stuff that we struggle to describe. But particularly there's this aspect of God which we call the Trinity today. And basically the Trinity means that God is three but God is also one. There's the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but just one God. And you've probably heard about that before. So in trying to explain this, the early church fathers wrote some very, very complicated descriptions. Um, Let me give you an example of the kind of descriptions that they came up with. This one's called the Athanasian Creed. Now, we do the Apostles' Creed like every week. I think we're going to... Did we do it already? We did it already, didn't we? All right? Well, be thankful that we do the Apostles' Creed, not the Athanasian Creed, because I'm going to read the Athanasian Creed for you and it's going to be rough, okay? So stick with me. Here we go. We worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity. Neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one glory equal, majesty co eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Holy Spirit incomprehensible, the Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. And also, there are not three incomprehensibles, nor three uncreated, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is Almighty, the Son Almighty, and the Holy Spirit Almighty, and yet there are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. And in the Trinity, none is before or after another, none is greater or lesser than the other, but all three persons, co-eternal and co-equal. So that in all things, as is aforesaid, the unity in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved, must think thus... Of the Trinity. So, do you think thus of the Trinity? I'm not sure if I did because I think I don't understand half of that. All right, and that's only that's like a summary of it. So, be thankful that we don't say that creed every week. But it goes on like that for ages and ages and ages, and I don't find that particularly helpful. The only thing I understand about that is that, well, if that's what God's like, then He must be a lawyer, because that's, that's what you've got to do to understand that kind of stuff. It's not very helpful. And so, if we as adults can't understand that when you go to Sunday school, how do they explain that to kids? And, and people have tried to come up with some other explanations. Like you may have heard people say that God's like an egg you know, there's the yolk and the shell and the white, and there's three parts, but it's one egg. Or it's like, God's like water, where there's liquid and steam and ice. There's three forms, but it's all the same thing. But none of those quite work. Um, and, and some people find them helpful, others think, no, that's not right. Um, because nothing that we have is quite like God. And I think all of that's okay, because I don't think that understanding what God's form is like what God's shape is like. I don't think that's really very important at all. I think what's more important is understanding what is in God's heart and why God created you in the first place. What was God after? What did he want when he created people in the first place? Why did God make you? And what was in his heart when he created you? Have you ever wondered that? Why are you here? It's one of the big questions in life. Why are we here? And understanding what was in God's heart when he created you is one of actually the most amazing and exciting parts about a relationship with God. I think that what God was after when he created the world, when he created you, I think that what he was after was more of what he already enjoyed in the trinity-ness. The thing that made God special, the thing that made God happy, he wanted more of that. And the thing that God loved and that he wanted more of was community. Community. The Father, Son and Holy Spirit had such a great time together and such a deep love for each other that God said, that's really good, we need more of that. And so he created you. He created life. And God created us to experience and enjoy what he enjoys. There's a man called John Altberg, and and if you care to look, most of what I've said today in this sermon is is based around a book that he wrote called Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them, right. So if you want to know more, go look at that book, it's a great book. But he writes this, did you ever wonder what life is like inside the Trinity? The writers of Scripture are most interested in talking about God's relationship with us so we don't know a lot about this. But it's worth considering, do you think there was a lot of bickering about who was the most omniscient or the most omnipotent or which member of the Trinity is the oldest. My wife and I will occasionally argue about division of labour issues, whose turn it is to take out the dog or empty the dishwasher. Can you imagine that kind of discussion happening within the Trinity? Not quite. We see this when Jesus was on earth and this was our Bible reading today. We see how God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit interact with each other. First, we see that the Holy Spirit comes not to draw attention to himself but to point to Jesus. So if you remember that from the reading, when Jesus was being baptised, the Holy Spirit comes down to point to Jesus. And when Jesus got baptised, the Holy Spirit's speaking through John the Baptist, and we see this in in the John uh, Gospel, and he's speaking through John the Baptist, and he's constantly saying, look at Jesus. Follow him. Worship him. Do what he says. Love him. And John Ortberg calls that the shyness of the Holy Spirit. But it's weird because... At the same time, Jesus is also shy like that. He never talked about how wonderful he was. He pointed to who? Jesus pointed to the Father. And he said, I came not to be served, but to serve. But we see that the Father is shy as well, because when Jesus was baptised, and everybody was looking at Jesus just being baptised, and everybody was looking at the dove, the Holy Spirit coming down, all of the attention was on Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And what did the Father say? Hey, don't forget about me. I'm here. I'm important. I'm just kind of up in heaven right now. So, so don't, don't forget that I'm involved. No, he says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Look at him. And so we see that God is actually Shy. God is constantly pointing attention away from himself to another member of the Trinity. And so God's shyness is not the shyness of embarrassment, but it is the good shyness of love. The shyness of self-sacrifice. The kind of shyness that makes real community wonderful. Now, this is a very different picture of God than what many of us grew up with. Many of us grew up thinking that God is proud and arrogant, but it's not true. God's giving and He's generous and He's the kind of person who wants to share what He loves most in life with us. God did not create human beings because He was lonely or bored. God created human beings because He was so in love with community, that he wanted a world full of people to share community with. And God made human beings in a special way that's different to the animals and different to the angels. And The Bible says that God made us in a unique way so that we reflect something of God himself. And the Bible calls that thing the image of God. And this reflection or this shadow of God is in every single one of us. And people have spent a long time debating, well, what exactly is this image of God that is in us? And I think that the answer is probably right there in front of our noses at the start of the Bible. The Bible seems to point out that this image of God, this reflection of God in us is connected to our capacity and our need for relationships because in Genesis, in the very first chapters of the Bible, the image of God, phrase and idea, is placed right next to marriage. Here it is. It says, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And if you understand kind of old Middle Eastern poetry that's saying, look at these two phrases, they're connected. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What it's saying is that God created two and yet the two are capable of achieving a kind of oneness. And when a couple gets married, the two become one, they become a family. And the love that the couple shares is so amazing and so wonderful That they want to invite others to join their circle of love and joy. So what do they do? They have a baby. And they invite that baby to join the giving and receiving of love and joy and self-sacrifice that makes that family special. And that's what God does. In fact, God was doing it first. And God invites us into that fellowship as well. And this is, listen to what Jesus was praying when he was praying for us. He says, I pray for those who will believe in me that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, that's a really mind-blowing kind of thing for Jesus to pray because it almost sounds like he's praying some heresy there. He prays that we will be with each other in the same way that the Trinity happens. And he prays that we will actually join the Trinity in the same way that the Trinity happens. And I'm really a little bit afraid of trying to explain what he was saying there because I'm not quite sure how that works. But that's what he's inviting us to do. And so every person you see and every moment of your life is an opportunity to live in and extend The community of God. That's what God's asking us to do. Every time you forgive someone who hurt you, every time you encourage someone who's feeling exhausted or defeated or who is standing alone, every time you're confronting someone in love in the right kind of way, every time you open your heart to a friend or reconcile with an enemy or spend time with a little child, you are aligning yourself with God's purpose for the world. And that's why you were born. To participate in God's dream of community, family. And if you ignore this, and if you neglect this, it doesn't matter what else you do in life. It doesn't matter whether you build pyramids like they did, or your resume becomes massively impressive, or you build an empire. It doesn't matter if you neglect This, you will die a failure. And I bury people every week. And I see that every week. If you neglect community, family, you will die a failure. But if you embrace and spend your life devoted to community, People say stuff about you at the end that says this person lived well. With billions of people in a world, somebody should create a system and no one is lonely and somebody did, God did, and it's called community. You might call it family. And every single person in this church has a part to play in making it happen in our circle. Family is supposed to be the ultimate expression of community. It's supposed to be. And the second best expression of it is supposed to be church, which we call the family of God. And that's what this circle represents. Every single one of us should be welcoming others into the fellowship of our lives, welcoming welcoming them into our homes and into our families, now, we do have a structured way of doing this and it's called small groups and we want that to go better and I'm in charge of that and I haven't done a great job of it this year because I haven't been around partly but you know, we're gonna, we need to work on that. But that's the formal way of doing it. But don't be relying on small groups to do it for you. If you are not welcoming people into your lives in deeper and deeper ways... You're not following the example of God. And we're not making all of life all about Jesus. Because that's what Jesus did. But here's the thing, and this is the hard bit, and I'll finish with this. Defeating loneliness and defeating aloneness is not an easy thing to do. It actually takes sacrifice. You know that thing that the kid said at the start where we should find lonely and not lonely people? and match them up. Why would the not lonely person want to do that? I mean, the lonely person's a loser and the not lonely person, they've got, they're full. It takes sacrifice. Relationship takes sacrifice. It takes you inviting someone else into your circle. Don't expect others to invite you into their circle. I'll say that again. Do not expect somebody else to invite you into their circle. The Bible says a man that has friends must show himself friendly. And that principle is true. If you want to have friends, you've got to do the friend thing. Don't expect others to do the friend thing to you. Because that's not what God did. God didn't wait for us to invite him into our our circle, did he? God wasn't up there going, hey, community should happen with the world. I've created the world. I'll wait for them to invite me down to spend community with them. No, that's not what happened. God said, no, I will be the one who'll sacrifice. I'll sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice and I'll put myself out there until it hurts so that I can invite people into my circle. And he did that until it got past the hurting point and he got killed. All so that he could invite us into his circle. So if you are lonely and wanting a closer connection, don't wait for someone to invite you. You do the inviting. Invite other people into your circle. And if they reject you, that's okay, because they rejected Jesus too. But that didn't stop him, so invite someone else and invite someone else because God calls us to keep inviting people into our circle for the rest of our lives. And that's what Jesus did when he died on the cross to invite you into his circle. And that's what the circle represents. Now, to give you a focus, we're saying the circle is about food. Okay? That gives you something to focus on, but it's not about food. It's about community. It's about family. So let's focus on that as we start to launch into this new thing together.